At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Howdy, everyone. If you enjoy the show, join our free Discord. Link in the description and chat with the cast. Please leave a review and consider joining our Patreon for behind-the-scenes content and more. Tears start at a dollar, and even that helps us out. To stay up to date with episode releases and more, follow us on Twitter at Riftway Podcast. Good evening, Rifters! This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules to enhance your gameplay experience. I'm Remy, Dungeon Master and a player on the Riftwake podcast. I'm Mitch, a player on Riftwake and a D&D enthusiast. And today's topic is The Wild Beyond the Witchlight, the newest book released by Wizards of the Coast. Uh, wanted to get this out last week, but unfortunately I broke my arm, so that plan just kind of fell through. Sorry about that, folks, but we are here. So let's go ahead and just talk about some of the pros and cons of this newest book. Uh, I'm curious, so I know that you don't have the book, but have you heard anything about the contents of this one, Mitch? It's for hippies. I'm sorry, what? Hippies. Pacifists. Hippies. Ah, okay. Yeah, that is one aspect that honestly irks me rather a lot. A lot of the press surrounding this book focuses heavily on the idea of oh you can get through this entire book with just the pacifist route and a lot of the news coverage around the book talks about that but come on this is D&D most people aren't going to put the effort into doing that theoretically can you get through the book without fighting anything yeah, I guess. But on the practical side, fuck that. I'm not going to go through an entire campaign of D&D with conscious effort to avoid every single potential combat encounter. Yes, there are definitely people in the world who do want to go through the pacifist playthrough in video games and perhaps even here in D&D. But god damn it, is it so much more effort than I would be willing to put in myself as a player. Yeah, like, I got, I got a pacifist enough in real life. Let me stab something. <laughs> yes, I mean, D&D is escapist fantasy. Like, you want to cast spells, you want to, you know, conduct acts of daring do, and to play through the entire pacifist route? No, I don't want to do that. Now, It'd be one thing if it was actually more rules on how to run encounters without going to combat. If it was actually rules for pacifism, like here's how to run types of combat encounters that instead of actually devolving into combat, maybe here's a set of DCs or a skill check challenge to defuse the situation. I would be much more favorable if that were the case. Or if they actually gave us fucking 
rules for how to do experience for not combat encounters that isn't part of Unearthed Arcana. But it's not that at all. The entire thing is very specific to this adventure. Where was I? Oh, right. Outrage. Yes. <sighs> so again, all of the talk about pacifism, but it doesn't actually give rules for pacifism, which is kind of the impression that you get from a lot of the ads. It's just about the individual encounters in the adventure. So in terms of actually usable things that you might incorporate from this adventure into your D&D game, it is, to be blunt, significantly less than advertised. So before I get into the usable bits, let me talk about like a little bit more about the actual pros and cons of the adventure itself. First things first, it is an incredibly thoroughly written adventure in terms of if this, then that, which is a good thing for a lot of new dungeon masters. On the downside, it tells you a lot of the details of if this, then that, which, to be honest, irks me as a more experienced dungeon master because I am the type who prefers to run my own world and go off on my own path, and this doesn't really do that incorporation into a homebrew world quite as well. There are, however, quite a few interesting tidbits that do come up throughout the course of this book. So... How familiar are you with D&D 5e cosmology? I don't even know what the word cosmology means. <laughs> okay, uh, the 5e multiverse. Oh, Baldur's uh, Gate, about it. <laughs> All right, so D&D has got a whole lot of different worlds, different planes, all that kind of shit. However, one thing that does get brought up a lot in this book is different characters that show up in different D&D worlds that are all crossing paths through the Feywild, which is the main setting for this adventure. So, like, it goes all over. So there's, you know, name drops of Mordenkainen, name drops of all kinds of, you know, famous D&D people, you know, uh, one of the hags that you might encounter actually shows up in the Ghosts of Saltmarsh book. So there's a lot. Not to mention, one thing that has also gotten a lot of press is that there's a lot of name drops from like the era of the old uh, D&D cartoon from back in the 80s, I want to say. I don't remember because I haven't actually watched that yet. But yeah, like... There is mention, though, that the Feywild singular seems to have, you know, crossing paths through the various material planes in the D&D multiverse through the different settings, the different just sources of D&D over a long period of time, really. And that actually is particularly interesting to me, because to be honest, that's not how I personally understood how that worked like i thought that it was like there is the material plane and then there would be the you know the shadow fell the fey wild and then there might be another universe that has its own material plane and its own fey wild and shadow fell so this seems to imply that there's not you know multiple fey wilds in the local dnd multiverse but that there are, in fact, just different material planes linked to a singular Feywild. Which is interesting, to be honest, and not quite how I had made use of that type of cosmology. So whether you want to kind of incorporate that in the like infinite material planes and singular extra pl or other planar locations in your D&D cosmology, is a choice that you as a dungeon master can make in terms of how you want to incorporate those bits of information. But the the name drops honestly are something that I appreciate because it was just cool to see some of the mentions of just various characters here and there. There was a lot of just fun things. Now, in terms of the actual 
setting itself, I'm going to be honest here, the Feywild is my least favorite place in all of D&D, I think, to be honest. I, I really just can't fucking stand it. Uh, it is relatively well-known to regular listeners, but I am a creature of logic. Feywild logic isn't. It is, like, it actually does specifically mention a few places throughout the book that there is a specific type of, like, Feywild logic that is not normal and that creatures from places other than the Feywild can have a significant amount of difficulty to understand and follow along with the rules that exist in the Feywild. And that is 100% goddamn true because it just doesn't work for me. So the easiest way that I can think of to just sum up the Feywild, think Wonderland, like of Alice in Wonderland fame, because it's that. And they fucking know it too. So they actually have in this book, a section that is called Through the Looking Glass, you know, the sequel to Alice in Wonderland. And one of the creatures that is introduced in this book is the Jabberwock, uh, like, uh, you know, from the poem The Jabberwocky. And, like, so they, they know what this is, and they leaned into it hard in this book. But, yeah, if you are trying to run an adventure in the Feywild that is not just from this book itself, good luck. Like, it, to be honest, people just with more imagination or creativity or just, I don't even know what the right word is, but more of the thing that I lack in terms of understanding Wonderland and the Feywild, just good luck is really all I can say. Uh, or just to give one other contemporary comparison, The Wizard of Oz, or so Oz as the setting. So if you just imagine Wonderland and Oz and just all of that kind of weird, non-logic rules of how the world itself works, that that's the Feywild. And again, this is not me just giving an example. They reference both of those in this book. Both Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz have references and shoutouts in the goddamn book itself. So it literally is those things, you know, but in D&D. So that being said, me being me, I'm not going to talk about the adventure because I am rather hardcore anti-spoiler. So I'm going to talk through the actual things that you can use from this adventure in your D&D games, as that's kind of our shit. So let's go ahead and start with the new races that are introduced in this book. And so they introduce the fairy and the herringon. Uh, actually, quick tangent. One minor detail that I do quite appreciate is that in the, I think, opening chapter of the book, they actually have a pronunciation guide for a lot of the names and just weird words that do appear in this book. And that's a good idea. I'm glad that they did that. Anyway, are you familiar with the new rules that seem to be the way that races and just a lot of newer things seem to be going in uh, new racial introductions and such? No. All right. So you know how normally most of the D&D races have the whole thing for ability score increases for the race where it's plus two to something and one to something else. Yeah. That is not the case anymore. And they did introduce the new optional rule in, in Natasha's Culture of Everything to apply ability score increases differently. So instead of having the specific plus two and plus one, it is different now. When determining your character's ability scores, increase one score by two and a different score by one, or increase three different scores by one. Follow this rule regardless of the method you choose to determine the scores, such as rolling or point by. That's awesome. So you can literally, 
using this version of the ability score increase rule to just make whatever race you want, whatever class you want. And again, if you're playing the escapist fantasy that is D&D, I really, really appreciate that. So if you wanted to just have, you know, a rogue character, then sure, you can just put, you know, two in dex and one in intelligence or whatever you want. But then they also give that follow-up option of three scores increased by one. So if you are an OCD asshole like myself who hates having odd-numbered ability scores, and let's say you're using point by where you can't get above a 15 in the stats that you're making, then having the ability to just balance out the odd numbers by just having, you know, 16, 16, 16, 999. Okay, that's absolutely fantastic. And I really appreciate the flexibility that this newer ability score increase rule does make use of. Uh, anyway, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent, but still relevant. Languages. Characters can read, speak, and write, common, and one other language that you and your DM agree is appropriate for the character. So instead of it automatically being like a dwarf knowing common and dwarvish, it could just be like, okay, this dwarf, you know, grew up in, I don't know, a goblin, <laughs> you know, parents killed, raised by goblins. And that's the kind of backstory you're going for. Like you, it just offers a little bit more flexibility, which again, good thing. Ba, 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 ba. Skipping over the red. Okay, fairies. Infused with the magic of the Feywild, most fairies look like small elves with insectile wings, but each fairy has a special physical characteristic that sets the fairy apart. For your fairy, roll on the Fey characteristics table, or choose an option from it. You're also free to come up with your own characteristic if none of the suggestions below fit your character. This is pretty cool. So there's a D8 chart here that just lets you pick just the detail about something about your fairy that just makes them special. So they can have wings like a bird instead of uh, insectile wings. They could have uh, particularly large ears. So if you want to go for more of the, you know, World of Warcraft style ears for the fey. And <laughs> that's kind of funny. You smell like fresh brownies. All right, sure, why not? I just appreciate that that's a pretty fun thing. But now in terms of the actual traits. First things, creature type. You are a fae. That alone is actually pretty damn important and something that a lot of dungeon masters and players, for that matter, may gloss over either purposefully or by accident. But there are quite a number of spells that specifically do target humanoids. So the fact that you are a fey means that those spells just flat out do not affect you. Nifty. Size. You are small. Walking speed 30 feet. Fairy magic. Know the druid path cantrip. And then at third level, you can cast fairy fire with this trait. And at fifth level, enlarge reduce. And once you cast either spell, you can't cast it again with the trait until you finish a long rest. Now, another addition that was part of the upgrades, starting with Tasha, you can also cast either of those spells using any spell slots you have of the appropriate level. I love that detail, the fact that you don't just have the spell with the trait, but that it actually gives you the ability to cast the spell with your spell slots because it's a spell that you have access to. It's just a little tidiness detail that I really do just appreciate. Uh, anyway, sorry, tangent again. And flight. Because of your wings, you have a flying speed equal to your walking speed. You can't use this flying speed if you're wearing medium or heavy armor. Interesting. Do you notice anything about the phrasing of that flight? Honestly, I forgot the sentence by the time you're done saying it. Ah... <sighs> So it's not just you have a 30-foot fly speed, but it's that you have a fly speed equal to your walking speed, which means that any time that you do or get something that increases your walking speed, that increases your fly speed as well. 
which means that if you have a you know barbarian fairy or a monk fairy or take the mobile feat that that increases both your walking speed and your flight speed which is really fucking cool and then it just really makes a fairy surprisingly well suited to barbarian and monk which is honestly kind of funny to me especially if you do consider that both of those classes have you know the unarmored ability so that they don't have to worry about the medium or heavy armor to slow their flight because they don't need it with those classes so i really hope to see a whole bunch of fairy barbarians in the near future all right anyway next up is the herringon have you heard uh or read any of the articles about this one no okay i was going to but i didn't (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you did. Yeah. All right. Well, take the first four letters of this hair. H-A-R-E. What does that tell you? Uh, is it a rabbit person? It's rabbit folk. What's that, Doc? <laughs> yes. Now we finally have stats for people who want to play Bugs Bunny. Arcane Trickster. Oh, man. How would... That would be a lot of fun. It would not at all shock me if we did suddenly see a whole bunch of those. But do we have a Daffy Duck? There are no duck folk yet. Give them time, though. Um, I would love if they made a duck folk and they actually gave them a trait, like, despicable. Like, where they just get an advantage on intimidation or some such. That would be very funny. All right, anyway, Herringon. So, first off, they are a humanoid. So they are not Fey, even though they are residents of the Fey Wild. Size. You're medium or small. You choose when you select the race. That's actually pretty neat to me. That is the first time there has ever been a size choice involved in a race. So that's pretty nifty. So you can choose if you want to be like gnome, goblin, you know, you have a massive amount of flexibility and just actually the size that your character is and i appreciate that speed of 30 feet (laughs) hair trigger you can add your proficiency bonus to your initiative rolls that's a nifty one leoprene senses you have proficiency in the perception skill given the ears that checks out lucky footwork when you fail a deck save you can use your reaction to roll a d4 and Add it to the save, potentially turning the failure into a success. You can't use this reaction if you're prone or your speed is zero. Huh. Do you notice an interesting limitation, or rather lack thereof, in that one? Nope. So, a lot of racial abilities are, you know, once per long rest, like we just talked about for the fairy's magic. But this is not limited in any way shape or form like in terms of quantity the only restriction is that you can't be prone or have your speed reduced to zero so a d4 as a reaction added to a deck save can be massively beneficial do you remember a couple of the spells that rely on dexterity saving throws uh well, there's a new one I just learned uh, the other day, uh, or today, uh, and fuck that guy in particular, is, I think it's the spell. What? <laughs> Hold on, let me pull this up. It is the greatest spell I have ever heard in my life. Oh, dear. Uh, it's, it's obviously homebrew. Uh, screw that one guy in particular is the name of the spell. Oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Range Unlimited. But yeah, that's deck safe. Uh, okay, let me rephrase the question for something you should know the answer to. What is the most iconic attack spell in D&D? Fireball, Avi. Fireball. So fireball relies on a dexterity saving throw. So with this, if you do just miss your save by a hair, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you could use your reaction Ooh. to add this d4 <laughs> to potentially make that a success. So that is 
probably going to be a really underappreciated ability at first until characters actually start making use of that. Anyway, uh, they do actually also have a final ability, Rabbit Hop. As a bonus action, you can jump a number of feet equal to five times your proficiency bonus without provoking opportunity attacks. You can use this trait only if your speed is greater than zero. You can use it a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, and you regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. So that's pretty nifty to just hop out of danger as a bonus action without provoking opportunity attacks. So even at first level, because it is a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, that means at level one, a Herengon would be able to use this bonus action twice a day to hop 10 feet away. That is a really impressive mobility trait. And the fact that it does scale up with proficiency bonus, that's really fucking cool. I actually quite like that. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All right, and that's it for the new races. And there are also a whole lot of, you know, there's some new backgrounds, there's some new, you know, character traits, like the personality traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws. To be honest, though, I just don't care about that. So I'm just going to move right along. So let's move on over to magic items. So have you heard anything about any of the new magic items that have been introduced in this? No, but I really hope there's a lucky rabbit's foot. You know, that honestly had not fucking occurred to me until you just said that. That is a massive missed opportunity. They don't have that, and I freaking wish that they did. I mean, come on, they, if you add a rabbit race, you need a rabbit's foot, right? Oh, man, that would be so freaking appropriate. I'm, on, I'm disappointed that they didn't do that. That, ah, oh, man. Well done, Mitch. Yep. Not like killing a sentient race for their lucky foot, right? <laughs> uh. All right. Anyway, yeah, on the magic item front, there are a handful of, you know, useful things, neat things added, but I am a little bit disappointed overall, especially now that I think about the lack of rabbit's foot. But there are a couple of new things that I do want to call out. First things first, there are a pair of new legendary items that are introduced in the Witchlight Carnival aspect of the book, like towards the really pretty early on in the adventure, they get mentioned and introduced. So I am not going to actually go through the full reading of these two items because of the fact that it is spoilery to the actual story but i'm just going to mention that they are pretty nifty but as i am want to do i love just looking at existing magic items and using them as a template 
So I'm just going to call out that one of the legendary magic items, uh, actually, I guess I can at least mention, they're called the Witchlight Vein and the Witchlight Watch. And again, they get described pretty early, but I'm not going to really describe them in any amount of detail. But one of the items, the creature attuned to it cannot be blinded, deafened, petrified, or stunned. So this is an effect that appears in a good number of artifacts, but does not show up usually on a legendary item. So there is a trade-off, however, that the creature holding the item has a vulnerability to lightning damage, which means that any lightning damage would cause double the damage to the creature attuned to, or to the creature holding this item. But that's actually pretty interesting to me. So the idea of having a legendary item with a massively powerful set of defenses like that, but that does create this vulnerability in exchange, I really, really like that. That is exactly the kind of thing that I like as a DM to consider that you can have this, you know, imagine if you do have, you know, the Dwarven King or, you know, whatever powerful figure you make use of in your own world, and you do have them have some very powerful magic item, and then they might have this secret weakness that they are trying to guard very jealously. And this is the kind of secret that maybe the, if it is discovered, they might get blackmailed by it, or they might just want you know someone killed if they do just discover the secret vulnerability there's a lot of potential storytelling just with that and there's just a lot that could be done with it and the conditions here blinded deaf and petrified or stunned noticeably lacks two of the other important ones frightened or charmed so as a DM, though, if you wanted to just kind of flip that around and say, okay, maybe instead of those four, you make, make it so that the creature attuned cannot be frightened or charmed, but then you give the vulnerability. So again, just using the magic items introduced in this book as a template, just as an idea source for magic items that you might make use of in your own world, it, I mean, that's just the beauty of D&D. Take things, even things that you don't care for, and to make use of it in just a variety of ways to make them useful and relevant to the game and story that you're trying to play. So, moving right along. <laughs> there are some rather interesting vehicles. So, in particular, let me focus on the Bobbing Lily Pad, which is a very rare item that requires attunement. This magic vehicle is a 10-foot diameter leaf that floats on water. It has tendrils that propel it across land and across the water's surface, but not underwater, as well as through the air. It has a walking, flying, and swimming speed of 20 feet, and it can hover. It moves according to your spoken directions while you're riding. It can transport up to 300 pounds without hindrance, but half speed up to twice that weight. So it is not a fast mount, but damn if that isn't stylish. So a lily pad that doesn't just magically float or swim or whatever, but is on tendrils that are propelling it around. That is creepy as shit to imagine. And I really do like that one. That is just a neat thing in all honesty. Ba -ba -ba. So, one more magic item that I do have to talk about here, which is, of course, the legendary greatsword, Snickersnack. Tell me, have you ever heard those words before? Yeah, the Vorpo Blade goes Snickersnack. Yes. And what is that from? Uh, Alice in Wonderland. Well, close enough. through the looking glass, technically. Yeah. But, yeah, close enough. So, the Vorpal Sword is a thing that has existed in D&D for, I don't even know how long, but... It, oh, it's quite it's a, not just D&D, man. It's, it's every video game, too. Well, yeah, but the fact that it has already existed in D&D 
But now there is a named version of the Vorpal Sword, Snickersnack, which is just kind of funny to me that they did take it that step farther. So the normal Vorpal Sword is already a legendary item, which, you know, plus three ignores resistance to slashing damage, which is pretty neat, but has the very, very powerful effect of if you do attack a creature and roll a 20 on the attack roll, you cut off one of the creature's heads, which does kill it if it is a creature that cannot live without a head. I do just enjoy the phrasing of that, by the way. But then Snickersnack also has all of those same properties, but what is unique about Snickersnack? Well, a couple of things, honestly. So this is still just legendary, requires attunement, but specifically requires attunement by a non-evil creature, because unlike the the general Vorpal Sword, Snickersnack is sentient. So it craves the destruction of evil dragons and urges you to seek out these creatures and slay them. And it has just a kind of a few interesting just quirks to the personality that I, I'll leave for y'all to discover if you do decide to make use of this. But it also has one more interesting mechanical feature. While attuned to Snickersnack, you have proficiency with greatswords, and you can use your charisma modifier instead of your strength modifier for attack and damage rolls made with the weapon. Now that sentence gives me ideas. So first things first, a magic item that gives you proficiency with it when you're attuned to it is fantastic. I love the very, very, just massive amount of flexibility that that gives for characters. Because a lot of the times you do have, you know, the situation where a player wants their character to use a particular type of weapon, but doesn't have proficiency with that class that they're playing. And, like, to use a feat on something that is, for all intents and purposes, a cosmetic detail of the character is just never something that sits right with me. So canonically speaking, you know, between Elven Chain and this, there is now precedence for armor and weapons that can grant proficiency to the person using it. And that does just make me happy. But then you have the addition of being able to use Charisma Modifier instead of Strength. So... Again, this is now canonical that such magic is possible. So, of course, as a DM, it's up to you if you want that to be restricted to a legendary item, or if you do want to make that a little bit more accessible, like to have a weaker version that might be, you know, very rare or rare. Again, up to you as the DM. But the fact that this is now canonically possible does indeed make me quite happy indeed. And of course, with talking about the Vorpal Sword and Snickersnack, I think that that's a pretty good time to transition into monsters. So, <laughs> you know what? Let's just make the transition just as blunt as possible here and just start with the Jabberwock. So, what type of creature would you say is a Jabberwock? Ah, uh, I got no clue. Uh, <laughs> so you, you mean like class, like fiend or whatever? Or? No, or just well, like what animal no. type? Either. I'm just curious. Like, how would you just describe the Jabberwock? Ah, uh, my sixth grade reading teacher. <laughs> well, remember, my A is in in education. Uh. I didn't even Actually, know just I quick tangent. It's like part of the reason I am so excited about this particular tidbit. As much as I do dislike Alice in Wonderland and a lot of the other just Feywild aspects, I really just have a strong love of the poem Jabberwocky, and 
it is actually one of the very few lessons that I actually taught as a teacher when I was an assistant teacher while going through my schooling. So, yeah. So teaching the lesson around Jabberwock is ironic in a good way. Stay tuned for the end, folks, for Poetry with Remy. <laughs> anyway, it is a dragon. So the reason that Snickersnack is, you know, pointed towards evil dragons is that is the blade specifically to slay the Jabberwock. So stat-wise, this is a huge dragon with 18 AC, 115 hit points, and most dragons will have like a normal walk speed, fly speed, and then might have a climb or swim. The Jabberwock has all four. Walk 30 foot, climb 30 foot, fly 30 foot, swim 30 foot. Which, to be honest, is a little bit odd because most dragons can fly faster they can run. But, well, whatever. I'm not a game designer, so I'm not going to quibble too much over that. What is interesting, though, <laughs> the Jabberwock has a damage vulnerability. Can you guess what it is? Uh... You mean besides the Snickersnack? Slashing from a Vorpal Sword. So they really just do lean heavily onto the existing lore for this, which is just kind of funny. Now, one thing that does also make the Jabberwock deceptively dangerous, this thing has True Sight to 120 feet. So True Sight, as a quick refresher, is the best sense. It beats everything. It can see in normal and non-magical darkness, invisible creatures and objects, visual illusions, all that shit. It just can see that to 120 feet. So you are not going to sneak up like through that type of deception on a Chapperwalk. Now, in terms of its actual abilities, though, it's also pretty nifty and again, kind of leans into the poem. So first off, it has the trait Confusing Burble. The Jabberwock burbles to itself unless it's incapacitated. Any creature that starts its turn within 30 feet of it is able to hear its burbling, must make a DC 18 charisma saving throw. Then on a failed save, it can't take reactions until the start of its next turn, and has to roll a d4 to determine what it does during the current turn. On a 1 or 2, it does nothing. On a 3... It does nothing except use all its movement to move in a random direction. On a four, it makes one melee attack against a random creature it can see, or nothing if no visible creature is within reach. So if you just fail that DC 18 charisma save, which is pretty goddamn hard, especially if you do consider that this adventure is supposed to be meant for first through eighth level, that's a pretty damn hard roll. And then a anyone who fails that does not get to be productive on their turn and may well actively hinder the party. That is dangerous as hell. And of course, it is a legendary creature with the usual three legendary resistances a day, then also the usual three legendary actions a day to make either a tail attack, rend attack, or a wing attack. So pretty standard for dragons on that part. Another thing that makes it dangerous, though, regeneration. The Jabberwock regains... Actually, I'm not going to read the full regeneration text on second thought, because, as most of you know, most creatures with regeneration have a weakness that stops it. I don't want to actually spoil what that is for the Jabberwock, so I'm just going to mention it has regeneration and good fucking luck. Is it Vorpal Swords? It's not Vorpal Swords. God, that'd be so much more dangerous if it was only that that could stop it. Anyway, it also has the trait Uncanny Tracker. And this one is honestly really fucking cool and absolutely something that I'm going to be stealing to make use of on other monsters in my own world. The Jabberwock can unerringly track any creature it's wounded in the last 24 hours and it knows the distance and direction to its quarry as long as the two of them are on the same plane of existence. 
that is goddamn cool. The ability to just track down things that you've hurt. I like that a lot. And in terms of its actual actions, uh, it is able to rend for 3d10 plus 5 damage or use its tail attack. Now, unlike most dragons, it has something a smidge different. Fiery Gaze. Recharge 5-6. Hmm. And again, I don't want to give away a potential weakness here, so I'm just going to mention part of this. Emits a 120-foot-long, 5-foot-wide line of fire from its eyes. Each creature in that line has to make a DC-8 deck throw, taking 7d8 fire damage on a fail save, or half as much on a successful one. So, it has goddamn Superman heat vision. <sighs> I really like the Jabberwock. The fact that they did make it such a dangerous creature really does make me very happy. But anyway, uh, besides the Jabberwock, there actually are quite a lot of other interesting creatures that do get introduced. You get some stat blocks for an Archfey. You get some stat blocks for a bunch of just other uh, powerful Fey creatures that do exist in this adventure and just potentially in a D&D world. You get actual, also a good amount of stat blocks for a lot of plant creatures as well, as that's also something that's fairly common in the Feywild. So I'm just going to kind of skip over all of that, though. And there's just one last creature that I'm just going to mention before we wrap up for the day. It is now canon to have a stat block for a Displacer Beast kitten. Are you familiar with Displacer Beasts? Yeah, a little bit. So let me actually just real quick send you the actual picture from the book here. So there have been like drawings and fan art made of Displacer Beast kittens in the past. But I really do think that they did an amazing job here of creating a creature that is properly adorifying. Oops, didn't mean to copy the Zen link too. All right, so I just sent you that picture and I want you to describe Those this are thing. big paw pet thingy. Yeah. So for those who aren't as familiar, uh, Displacer Beast is a six-legged feline that can get rather large, that also has a pair of uh, barbed, I think is the right word, tentacles that, are, that grow out of its back, and also just has a rather dangerous ability to use illusion to hide its actual location to make them rather dangerous in combat. But this Displacer Beast kitten, it, I really... Adorifying really is the best word, because on the one hand, it's pretty it damn cute. It looks too muscular for a kitten. Yeah, I'll be honest, some of the fan art, I think, is better than the actual image that they made use of in the book, because some of the proportions, I would say, are a little bit off. But just the fact that it is a canonical creature that exists in D&D now, like, that just makes me happy. It also looks very derpy in the picture. Yeah, yeah, it does. It probably could have been solved by adding pupils, but yeah, there's a lot. Or at of least details. having at least having the light reflect off it in the from the same direction. But anyway, in summary, Wild Beyond the Witchlight is definitely not my favorite adventure to ever come out. And to be honest, may in fact be my least favorite adventure to have ever come out. But even with that said, there are a still pretty significant number of things here that do have value, do have use, can be converted. And again, my biases aside, it is a very thoroughly written adventure that DMs and players can get a lot out of. Hey everybody, thanks for sticking around. And now, Poetry with Red, Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. 
Twas brillig, and the slithy tove did gyre and jimble in the wave. All mimsy were the barbroves, and the mome rats outbraid. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the manxome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And, as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock, with eyes of flame, came whiffling through the tulgy wood, and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head went glumping back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O oh, frabjous day, clue, clay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig, and the slilly cove did gyre and jimble in the wave. All mimsy were the barograves, and the mome rats out there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Tiers start as low as a dollar, and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind-the-scenes content, early access to episodes, access to a monthly hangout where you'll be able to chat with the cast, and even input on Riffs and Rules topics. Find us on social media on Twitter, at Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwake, and you can send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffs, A-N-D, rules at gmail.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.